Well, thank you so much for that introduction. It's wonderful to be here. Um, I hear there are a few people here to whom I can say Chukharat uh, Meru. Apparently not too many. Um, uh, I'm a Dutch wannabe, you see. I was converted amongst the Dutch, but I don't have a drop of Dutch blood, so I try too hard to pass. But anyway, uh, it's great to be here. We had a wonderful conference. Um, on behalf of Ligonier, I'd like to thank the church here and uh, Dr. Scott and all the people on the staff here for the wonderful reception we received, the, uh, the cooperation, the support. Uh, Kim Armstrong, who organizes things for Ligonier, uh, said she'd seldom had a church so welcoming, so helpful, so encouraging. So thankful, we're thankful to all of you, and uh, it's a great privilege now to be able to look into God's Word with you. Uh, Dr. Scott told me that uh, you don't have a clock in this uh, church. It's a dangerous form of piety. Um, so I do have a watch, and... Uh, as uh, one young visitor to a church uh, observed when the minister took off his watch and asked his friend, what does that mean when the minister takes off his watch? And the answer was, it means absolutely nothing. Um, so I will try to be mindful of uh, our time together, but it is uh, such a, a privilege to be able to look into God's Word. So I'd ask you to turn with me uh, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark to chapter 9. And uh, we'll take up the reading at verse 14 and read down through verse 32. Mark chapter 9 at verse 14, a, a familiar story of a boy possessed by an unclean spirit whom Jesus delivers. So Mark 9 uh, verse 14, let us hear God's own word. And when they, that is Jesus and Peter and James and John, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes were arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to Jesus, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately he convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And, his, and Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible 
for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So far the reading of God's Word. Uh, This is a very dramatic story, isn't it? It's a very touching story. Um, It's a story that uh, speaks to the heart of anyone who has seen a fellow human being struggle and uh, be oppressed and uh, be overwhelmed with the miseries of this world. And it's a story that uh, so lived in the memory of those who had known Jesus that uh, it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, it's intriguing that uh, each of the gospel writers in telling this story focuses on a different aspect of what the story means. Uh, For Luke, he focuses on the power of Jesus to heal this boy and the glory of Jesus manifested in this saving and healing power. Uh, In Matthew, he focuses on the disciples and the struggle of the disciples and the weakness of the disciples uh, as they confront this boy with an unclean spirit. In Mark, the focus is on the father of the boy and the the passion of the father and the love of the father for his son and his great distress that his son has been so overwhelmed by this destructive spirit. And Matthew clearly sees a tremendous importance to this story in helping us understand the very essence of the gospel. Uh, Matthew puts his story right at the center of his gospel. So he wants to draw our attention to this because the center is important. And Mark tells the story 
at much greater length than either Matthew or Luke. Now, if you've studied Matthew, you, uh, Mark, you know one of the characteristics of Mark's gospel is he tends to be brief, he tends to be quick, he tends to move right along. But here he slows down. He tells the story of this casting out of a demon in twice the length that either Matthew or Luke used to tell this story. He wants us to slow down. He wants us to focus. He wants us to concentrate on this event because it is so important in helping us to see what Jesus is doing. In each of the three Gospels that record this healing, it occurs right after the transfiguration. The transfiguration is that moment when Jesus with his three disciples goes up on the mountain and for a brief time manifests to his disciples the glory of the kingdom that will be coming. Remember, Jesus had said there are some standing here who will not die before they see the kingdom come in its glory. And he fulfilled that word of prophecy. Jesus did when he went up on that mountain, took Peter, James, and John with him, and there for a moment, the true glory of Christ was revealed in the dazzling whiteness of his garments, in the beauty of his face, in the power of his conversation with Moses and Elijah. And there Jesus was displayed before his select group of disciples for whom he really was. And there the father bore testimony, didn't he? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter as usual, didn't really understand what was going on, but he thought it was a good thing and said, let's stay, let's build tents and stay, camp out. But that was not Jesus' purpose at that point. He wanted his disciples to see for a moment the glory that was coming, but the glory was not yet. They would have to wait. And so after this time of transfiguration, they come down the mountain. As they're coming down the mountain, they're talking about Elijah in Mark's account. Um, Mark is a tricky gospel. Now, I don't know if you can say that from a pulpit. I have to check with Dr. Scott afterwards. But Mark is a tricky gospel in that he assumes that you know a lot of the Old Testament as he goes along. And so he assumes, and I know a smart congregation like this does know it, he assumes that you know all about the prophet Malachi, right? You know all about Malachi, right? And what did Malachi prophesy? Malachi prophesied that become before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah would come. And so there was a lot of questioning about Elijah, has he come? Will he come? What will his coming mean? And Malachi says, when Elijah comes to prepare the way of the Lord, he will prepare the way of the Lord by turning the hearts of fathers to their sons. And what happens as they 
complete the journey down the mountain, they find a father whose heart is turned to his son in compassion and love and concern. Mark wants to say, you see, this is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament had been looking forward to. This is a critical moment. But it's also true that Jesus has come from the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration down into the plain of struggle and failure and loss and frustration. What does he find? He finds the remaining nine disciples arguing with the scribes. And what are they arguing about? They're arguing about the fact that the disciples have failed. The disciples have failed this father who came with this demon-possessed son and asked the disciples to cast the demon out. They were not, it says in the ESV, able. You know, sometimes you wonder what's on the mind of translators. The Greek really very clearly says they were not strong enough to cast him out. This is a great frustration to Jesus. Now you say, well, why should he be so frustrated? Well, because in Mark chapter 6, we're very clearly told Jesus gave the disciples the power to cast out demons. And Jesus sent the disciples out to minister, and they cast out demons. So the disciples must have been perplexed as to why they could not cast out this demon. And Mark wants us to feel how serious this situation is. Mark returns four times to describe the afflictions that afflict this poor boy. It's a spirit who is making him mute, we're told. It's a spirit that makes him deaf, we're told. It's a spirit that convulses him so that he collapses rigid. It's a spirit that's trying to destroy him, casting him into water and into fire in the convulsions. Imagine this, this boy, deaf and mute and prone to seizures for years, apparently. Imagine the desperation of the father. And then imagine the frustration of the disciples that they could not cast the spirit out. But then hear the even more profound frustration of the Savior where he says, oh, faithless generation, how long must I put up with you? Do you ever imagine Jesus frustrated? Do you ever imagine Jesus distressed and disappointed? To whom is he speaking these words? Oh, faithless generation. He's speaking them primarily to his own disciples. His disciples throughout the book of Mark don't understand. They don't get it. That's why this story is so critical, because this story is a story about what faith means.
and how to have faith. Because the gospel is written above all else to call us to faith in Jesus. And by seeing how the disciples don't get faith in Jesus at this point, we are being helped to see what faith in Jesus will look like. We are being helped to come to that faith that every one of us needs. And so Jesus expressing his frustration calls the father to come and to bring the boy. So the first focus of of Mark is on this situation of failure and frustration. The second focus of Mark in this text is on the father. It's interesting to me, I don't know why exactly, but it's interesting to me that in none of the gospel accounts is there much focus on the boy himself. We don't know what the boy thought. We don't know what the boy felt. But here there's this focus on the father. And any of us who are parents can understand the heart of that father. And so Jesus asks how long this boy has been possessed. And the father talks about since childhood, verse 21, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. And then comes one of the remarkable statements in the scriptures. If you can do anything, the father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. How do you think Jesus felt on hearing that question? If you can do anything, Jesus might have been tempted to say, what do you think I've been doing for eight chapters in this gospel? I've been showing you I can do what needs to be done. Now, Jesus is nicer than that. But it's a remarkable question, isn't it? If you can, show us compassion and help us. Is the compassion of Jesus in doubt? Is the will of Jesus to be helpful in doubt? Mark is focusing all the drama of this story on that question. It's the question that in a variety of ways at different points in the Gospels comes to this essential question, who is Jesus and what has he come to do? This is a question we confront in our lives in various circumstances, don't we? Particularly in trouble and in difficulty. We may have the question arise in our minds, is Jesus really compassionate? Does Jesus really care? Will Jesus really help? Can he? Can he? The response of Jesus is so important, so telling, that we have it there in Verse 23, 
he responds, if you can. Now, it's possible to misinterpret what Jesus is saying there. Some people have. Some people have misinterpreted this as if Jesus were saying, it's not if I can, it's if you can. It's not up to me, it's up to you. And there are faith movements who say, you see, Jesus has done all he can do, and now it's up to you by your faith to release his power. That's not what Jesus says here. It's not what Jesus says anywhere. The ESV rightly translates this with little quotation marks around it. Jesus is quoting back to the Father the words that he used. And the Greek scholars tell us that this is a way in Greek of saying, you're asking if I can? That's what he's really saying here. Jesus is just quoting the words of the Father, and the implication of the quotation is, of course I can. How can you doubt that I can? Of course I can. And then Jesus makes this wonderful promise. Mark 9, 23, all things are possible for one who believes. Again, that's not the best translation. The best translation would be, all things can be to the one who believes. Can you? I can. All things can be to the one who believes. Now again, this verse has been by some mistreated and misapplied and misunderstood. Jesus is calling this father to trust him. He's saying to this father, I can can do what needs doing. Do you trust me? I can help. Do you trust me? I am always compassionate. Do you trust me? Jesus is not calling any of us to faith as as if it were a work. Let's build up enough faith and we can get whatever we want. Do you think that's what Jesus is talking about? Do you think that's what the Father is talking about here? Do you think the father immediately thought to himself, wow, that's great, I can get a Rolls Royce? This is the absurdity of some interpretations here. They take this dramatic, compassionate moment in the life of the Savior and the life of this poor father, and they turn it into some craziness that takes us away from the heart of the matter. Jesus is the one who can, in his compassion and in his helpfulness, help us in the way we need to be helped in the way that he knows we need to be helped, not in the way we think we need to be helped. All things can be to the one who believes. All things that the Father knows are needful can be. All things can be that Jesus will give in his compassion. And what is our Christian experience? Our Christian experience is that What Jesus, in his wisdom and compassion, 
thinks we need may not be what we think we need. But it's what we really need. That's what he's saying here. Do you trust me to give you what you need? Do you trust me that I can do what needs doing? Do you trust me that I care so much for you that I will give you the most needful things? That's what he's saying to this father. That's what he's saying to us. And the father gets it. Do you see that? The father issues one of the most famous statements in the New Testament, I think. A statement that only Mark records for us. The father has heard the words of Jesus and he said, I believe. I trust you. I'm committed to you. I believe you can. I believe you're compassionate. I believe you're the great helper. I trust you. Help my unbelief. Now, come on, we've all been there, right? We understand exactly what's going on there. We trust Jesus. But we don't trust him all that we think we should. We have doubts that arise. And so this father makes this wonderful statement of faith. I believe. And he adds to it a wonderful prayer. Help my unbelief. You notice he doesn't say, I believe. But you know, I'm not really sure about this Jesus. He doesn't turn to Jesus and turn away from Jesus. But he turns to Jesus and says, I trust you. And then he goes on talking to Jesus to say, and where my trust isn't all that it should be, help me to trust more. And and that's the great message Mark has for you and for me. Where are you struggling? Where do you need Jesus? Where if you, have you wondered if he's going to help? And Mark says, say with this father, I believe. And where you still struggle, say, oh Jesus, help my unbelief. Where I don't believe as fully as I should, I turn to you because you're the only one that can help me believe as I should. I believe. Help my unbelief. In a sense, that's the real dramatic center of this passage, isn't it? And then Mark almost surprises us because we're sitting on the edge of our chairs, right? unless the preacher's going too long. We're sitting on the edge of our chairs and say, what's going to happen next? What's Jesus going to do? What's the Father going to do? What's going to happen to the little boy? And Mark surprises us. He's tricky. Mark says, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running, remember we'd been told there was a great crowd there. And the great crowd had been with the nine disciples and the scribes and the argument and the going back and forth. And apparently the Jesus and the father and the boy had sort of gone off 
a little bit to the side to have this very personal conversation. And suddenly the crowd becomes aware of this side conversation. They come running towards Jesus. And it's at that point when Jesus, who never wants to be in the spotlight in the Gospels, who is not there to entertain or excite, uh, he's not there as the center ring in a three-ring circus. Jesus, one can imagine almost somewhat quietly, turns to the unclean spirit in the boy and says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out and never enter him again. And there's the moment of deliverance, isn't it? The father's believed. The father has trusted Jesus to do what needs doing, and Jesus does it here. He casts out this destructive spirit. And the spirit, after crying out and convulsing him terribly, came out. And the boy was like a corpse. Now imagine this scene. The boy apparently had been there and been conscious. Now Jesus speaks this word, casting out the evil spirit, and the boy just collapses on the ground, unmoving. And those from a distance think he's dead. And I think, again, Mark wants us to stop and think, what's going on here? Two things are going on here. Jesus has spoken a word of deliverance and life. And the evil spirit has come out. But the world looks on this scene and doesn't see life and deliverance, it sees death. And I think Mark wants us to, to pause and think a minute and, and remember, faith is about hearing more than it's about seeing. Faith is about hearing more than it's about seeing. They have heard the word of Jesus, the word of deliverance, the word of life, and they think they've seen a corpse. That's the world we live in, isn't it? The, word, the world where people have opportunity to hear the word of Jesus, but often conclude that the word of Jesus is not true, that the word of Jesus is not effective, that Jesus speaks about life, but all we see is death. And there's the question of faith, isn't it? Do we believe what our eyes tell us, this boy is dead? Or do we believe the word of Jesus? He's delivered. And what happens? Jesus takes him by the hand and lifts him up and he arose. Mark's gospel is full of what I call mini-resurrections. 
Mark's gospel is full of indications that resurrection is coming. And this is one of them. The world sees death, but Jesus knows there's life. Um, Perhaps in the back of Mark's mind is Psalm 73, the Lord is always with me. He holds me by my right hand. Do you have that confidence? The Lord is always with you and holds you by his right hand? Because here, the Lord reaches down, takes the boy by the hand, and lifts him up to demonstrate the life and deliverance that Jesus has brought. What a glorious thing. What a glorious thing. And that's where the story sort of ends, except for the disciples. The disciples are kind of an afterthought. Uh, Jesus is not recorded as saying another word of the father of the boy. Jesus finds himself at home with his disciples. And the disciples ask, why could we not cast it out? They're still perplexed. They're still uncertain. And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Oh, say the disciples, I get it. We didn't pray long enough. If we'd only prayed longer, if we'd only prayed harder, if we'd only made more of a work out of prayer, we could have done this. Do you think that's what Jesus is saying? What is prayer? John Calvin gave one of the great definitions of prayer. He said, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Prayer is the chief exercise of faith. When we pray, we are exercising our trust in God. We are turning to God. We are praying to God. We are talking to God. We are laying out our concerns to God because we know God is the one who can help and who cares. The disciples didn't pray because they didn't have faith. That's what Jesus is saying to them. He's not saying you have to put in a certain amount of time in prayer to get what you want. He's saying you have to turn to God and trust Him and talk to Him as His Father had done. As this Father who said in prayer, help my unbelief. That's what the disciples had never done. Verses 30 to 32 are the very center, the very structural center of Mark's gospel, where Jesus is teaching his disciples the very essence of the gospel, that Jesus must die and be raised from the dead. He had just illustrated that for them, in a sense, with this boy. And now he's teaching the disciples Think about those words that Jesus is described as saying to the disciples there in 
Mark 9.31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he was killed, is killed, after three days he will rise. Which of those words is hard to understand? Delivered? Killed? Three days? Rise again? You got it? Do you understand it? Can you explain it to the children? It's not hard, is it? Mark tells us they didn't understand. They didn't understand. And what? And they were afraid to ask him. You know, if I were a disciple walking with Jesus and had the opportunity to talk with Jesus, talking to Jesus would be even easier than prayer, wouldn't it? It's a kind of prayer, talking to Jesus. They couldn't talk to him. They couldn't ask him. Why was that? Because their lives were dominated at this point by unbelief and fear. And Mark wants to say to us, so how is it with your life? Is your life dominated by unbelief and fear? Or is your life dominated by faith in Jesus? In Jesus who died on the cross to bear the penalty for the sin of his people? Is your faith in Jesus who rose again from the dead because death could not hold him? Because Jesus declared, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it up again. He can help us in our need because he's compassionate, because he's the helper, because he's the one we can trust. We trust him not to do what we want him to do. We trust him to do what he knows we need him to do. The father and the boy in the story, you know what became of them? I know only one thing for sure that became of them. They died. They died. Everybody whom Jesus healed of illness became sick again. What did this father and this boy most need? They most needed the forgiveness of their sins. They most needed a savior who would die for them and rise for them. They most needed a savior who in dying and rising would assure that they would be raised up on the last day and enter into the glory that they had tasted on the Mount of Transfiguration. Is that the faith you have? The faith that says, whatever the misery of this life, Jesus who died and was raised will take me with him to glory and I will be alive forever.
in him. May God grant that every one of us here can say to the Savior on that day, I believe. And every one of us who is struggling today, may you pray, help my unbelief.